This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on DAB Smart Speaker, on your app or at times.radio. Right, coming up on the episode today, what's Nigel Farage really like? Michael Crick, the veteran political journalist, has written an extraordinary uh, detailed biography of Nigel Farage. Is he really the most influential man in recent British politics? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's our columnist panel on a Thursday. It's Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. I suppose we should probably start off with the, the cost of living, just because that's the, the thing which is dominating everything. We've got energy bills going up. You've got uh, in tax bills are going up. National insurance is going up. We're expecting Rishi Sunak possibly to announce something on, on uh, council tax. This is where politics is real life, isn't it, India? Yeah, it's really interesting. What this makes me think about, actually, is um, the government's uh, green and environmental stuff which is really good and which I'm wholly in favour of, but it's also very middle class. Uh, And in the meantime, it's really easy to forget that people who are less well off are right in the face of it right now. And that the things that matter most to them are energy bills, the cost of petrol and food bills. And those people are having a difficult time already now. They can't have the heating on now, let alone in April. Uh, And I think that those two things are going to have to be reconciled somehow. A balance is going to have to be found at some point because you can't have them running parallel because it's mad. That's what I think. And what about you, James? Yeah, I, yeah. It's just it's really these things are interesting because eco- economics always seems so, you know, arcane to me, and you know, I find it confusing. And then when it's suddenly happening to you uh, in this instance, it's not very nice. And the, the risk for, you know, you know the, the, the Danny Finkelstein always says that the economy, how the economy is doing and how people feel the economy is doing plays a bigger part in politics than almost anything else. Yeah, I mean, there are all these kind of, um, I think there are these models of, you know, uh, American elections where people claim that you can basically predict whether the incumbent will win or lose in every American election ever simply based on economic data and, and nothing else apart from that. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those enormous fundamentals. That I think there's a good argument here possibly overwhelms almost every other factor, really. Uh, and um, India, Rishi Sunak has been quite, you know, I was speaking to some people who thought that, you know, this week maybe he'd missed his moment in terms of, you know, his possible ambitions to replace uh, Boris Johnson. But actually, today he gets another moment. 
And there's one thing we know. When Rishi Sunak uh, speaks in public, people like the look of him. He speaks well, and then he spends loads of money, and people seem to yeah. like that. <clears throat> and he's going to offer help, and he's going to try and help people in the lowest income bands, which, you know, can only is, is a laudable thing. It can only be praised. <clears throat> I wish he'd... Um, Sorry, I'm choking to death on something. I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm also. I wish he would. He won't. But I wish he would announce a, a windfall tax for the big energy companies. As I think it was as uh, I think Pat McFadden it was for Labour who proposed it. Shell we heard this morning has just announced gigantic, monstrous profits. Um, I mean, you know, they could just charge less, maybe also. I mean, it is um, quite incredible. The highest quarterly profits in eight years at Shell. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they're ultimately not, um, you know, contributing anything to the, to the effort to try and, uh, to no, and your industry, your industry representative, um, lady who was on about 20 minutes ago is saying, was saying that, that, that the industry hopes the government could announce more support for them. I mean, just charge less. Stop being so greedy. Well, yeah, because was, I was looking at um, a graphic of the breakdown of, you know, how much money the... And I think, actually, the, the company with their nice logo who sends you the, you know, the app and sends you the bill yeah. don't actually take a huge amount. But it's the... Um, uh, but, I mean, ultimately, lot, I mean, cause, as we've seen, lots of them have gone bust recently, in part because they bought... They hadn't bought enough gas mm. or, or they bought it on, you know, prices which then shot up and they basically just couldn't couldn't pay for it. But somebody's making loads of money somewhere, and it's yeah. also it's also a footing the bill. Yeah, absolutely. And they're and they're and they're asking for help. The companies that are making loads of money. It's, I mean, you know, something is really out of whack. It's not right. I was quite surprised. It was only this week, as you said, Labour calling for um, uh, windfall tax on on the energy companies. Having only done it this week, I mean, the Lib Dems, I think, have been calling for one for at least a fortnight. Um, mm. And you sort of wonder why. The, um, Keir Starmer and hasn't been doing that before. Yeah, it's funny. It would also play really well with the public. I think. I think. I think. I don't think there's anybody on any side that that thinks Shell should get richer and richer. Hurrah! Shell have got you know have made monumental profits this year. Good for them. I mean, I, 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 it's a kind of no brainer to me. Of course, they should be contributing or lowering their prices or helping in some way not just sitting there counting their billions of profit. It would also be, James, a very um, sort of Blairite thing to do because this is what Tony Blair did in 1997, imposed a windfall tax on the excess profits of the privatised <coughs> utilities. Yes, exactly. And I think those are exactly the kind of comparisons that Keir Starmer is looking for. Mm. Um, and especially opportune at this political moment because the Tories are so embroiled in all this kind of non-substantive stuff about parties and cakes. And if if he'd been able to come in, as you said, a bit earlier and say, well, you're all going on about this total nonsense. Here's me with a proper with a proper mm. policy that has this sort of interesting historical link that you know will make everyone think of Tony Blair. That would have been a yeah, that would have been a brilliant strategic move. There's also something very weird. You know, we've got Rishi Sunak. He's you know doing something complicated with energy bills, doing something complicated with uh, council tax, while also having to defend putting up national insurance because that was basically what he told Boris Johnson: if you want this more money, then you have to find a way of paying for it. And you can't. I'm thinking just scrapping that would help. Um, mm. Um, not you know, but that, but then you need the money for the NHS. You need the money for this. Uh, so let's move on, James, and talk about your column today about Joe Rogan, who is massive, and yet most people won't have heard of him. Yeah, one of these kind of fascinating figures who, in our sort of, we always talk about this kind of divided media landscape, but he is one of well, the New York Times has a great phase where with this great phrase where they describe him as basically one of the most consumed media products in the world. Basically. <laughs> 
he's just massive. A single episode of this podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, can attract tens of million, tens of millions of listeners to a single to a single podcast. Um, it's really hard to kind of describe his popularity. Um, for a broadcaster who has that kind of popularity, you might think of him as what? An American Matt Chorley. With, uh, <laughs> millions of enthusiastic listeners. Yeah, we're, not, um, we're not talking about the listening figures. <laughs> <in those times. laughs> um, um, and basically, so there was this huge deal last year where he was brought exclusively onto the listening platform Spotify for $100 million. And since then, he's caused them various scandals for having this conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, was the first one. And the most recent one is this accusation that he has been promoting COVID disinformation with various guests who've come on and said various sort of slightly dodgy things about vaccines. Or in one instance, he has said slightly dodgy things about vaccines. There's been a huge fuss, as there has been before with Joe Rogan and now uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell have taken all their music off Spotify. Uh, all, all, well, almost all of it. Some is, I think, some is weirdly available for licensing reasons. And there's this kind of huge scandal. And the upshot now seems to be that Joe Rogan is basically totally untouched by it, which is a testament to his extraordinary power. This guy who I think a lot of people just haven't heard of, unless you listen to him, is more powerful than Joni Mitchell. Um, Neil Young and just a sort of extraordinary cultural influence. So my, my column was talking about whether he is a good thing or a bad thing, what his motivations are, how we should kind of think about him in our sort of cultural landscape. And because um, I, I must admit, I, maybe I have listened to it once, but it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I mean, it's one thing having people on with a, a range of views, but the point is that he's not necessarily challenging them and in some cases going along with anti-vax views yeah exactly and well it's a kind of weird one because a lot i mean there have been tons of people in the comments underneath the column saying how fantastic joe rogan is and it is capable of being and sometimes i think it's a fantastic it's a fantastic radio show it's extremely interesting he's extremely curious these kind of mammoth episodes each one goes on for four hours talking to you know, it's Kanye west elon musk also kind of academics he's really into mixed martial arts this extraordinary range of people um an extremely interesting, extremely curious interviewer. He comes across, he's always insisting, I'm a really nice guy. And I sort of I sort of believe he is, but I think his problem is this sort of like, this kind of, he's so interested, he's so curious, it kind of turns into credulity. And yes, he's talking to Elon Musk and respectable academics, but then he's also talking to these other people. And this slightly kind of countercultural misinformation stuff that's going on is sort of, is fine if you're a kind of fringe figure, which a podcaster once upon a time totally would have been. But now he's suddenly this immensely mainstream establishment, wealthy person who Spotify, this huge company, is responsible for. And suddenly the question is now, well, can he be quite as cavalier with the truth? Has his responsibility changed when, you know, 30 million people might listen to a single episode? But he does this, I think his problem is he has this kind of outsider vibe, an outsider image, but actually is this enormously popular person with an enormous responsibility to tens of millions of people. And there's a kind of disconnect there, I think, which is fans maybe don't see. It's interesting, um, India, this sort of question then about freedom of speech, you know, the, the, the right of Spotify to, you know, are Spotify merely a platform or are they responsible for the content which appears, you know, in the, in the olden days, someone who you know, espouse controversial views in a newspaper. You could just not buy the newspaper. But now mm -hmm. we're sort of holding the shop responsible for the newspaper. 
Yes, it's really interesting. I'm not, I don't, I mean, I'm aware of who Joe, Joe Rogan is. I haven't um, ever listened to him. And the idea of listening to a four and a half hour podcast fills me with complete existence. It goes despair. back to my ongoing campaign. <laughs> bring, bring back editing. Bring yeah, back pissy, podcast, films, l- internet long reads, the death of editing. Everything's too long. Everything's yeah, too long. quite right. But, but, but it is a point about bringing back editors, isn't it? I mean, I think also there's a difficulty, and this is a difficulty that's not specific to Joe Rogan. It's a difficulty all across all kinds of media, that if you um, invite controversial figures onto your show or you interview them or you write them up or whatever, you are, I don't know, I you are responsible for introducing that content in whatever way. And I think, you know, there's a kind of old-fashioned idea that, you know, so-and-so would be a fun and sparky guest because they have controversial opinions and, you know, they should be allowed to air them and people should make up their own minds and so on and so forth, which is all true. But without somebody probably clever, cleverer, I gather Joe Rogan is perfectly clever, but without, as it were, an editor, I think that can kind of run off now in the 21st century in all kinds of not very good directions. So I totally get the appeal of having something kind of loose and unstructured and having unpredictable guests and saying unpredictable things. But the idea that it's then all fine because it somehow, you know, rearranges itself into balance or into into proper thorough questioning i don't think that works i don't think that works but i agree with you everything should be shorter <laughs> shorter and more concise well in that case let's move on uh, and talk about botox now you 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 have a um uh, a beauty column india in the sunday yes. times yes yes where what where do you stand on botox this is an investigation of the times about how uh, people are being offered, uh, beauticians are offered to inject women with black market boat. Anything which has got black market attached to it, I do not want to be injected with. Where do it's, you... completely ho- it's completely horrific, this investigation. It's sort of, you know, teenage girls buying Botox online and giving each other injections in their bedrooms. It's completely awful. Um, I've had Botox maybe five or six times, four or five times, something like that, not in the last five years. Um, and I used to think... But it was a good thing, and I'm not, I've completely changed my mind. I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing for middle-aged women. I mean, I think you know, unless unless I don't know, unless you're you look like a prune for some reason when you're 40 years old because you were dunked in hot water as a child or something. I don't know. You know, if there's if there's a genuine and there and Botox is used. Um, uh, and Great Ormond Street and so on for you know there are there yeah, are the sort of medical good, you, that, yeah there are medical uses for it. But I think vanity, just sort of bog standard vanity, is not a good enough reason to inject yourself with a toxin. I also think the problem with all of these things is that you all of these sort of mini procedures that that, that are so popular and that used to be popular with middle aged women uh, and that are now popular with much younger ones, horribly and disastrously, in my view. I think the problem with them is that they they're they're not quite addictive, but it's very hard to know when to stop. And unless you have a very, very good friend who says, you're starting to look like an egg, your face looks weird, (laughs) which most people don't, I have to say, I have observed, most people don't, then you end up looking really peculiar with a face full of toxins and it's just not, the direction of travel is not good. 
It's, it's interesting. So did you stop using it? Because my impression was always that if you, you sort of used it after it sort of wore off, you look worse than when you started. So you have to have more of it and it becomes a no, self-fulfilling. No, you, you, just, you go back to your normal face and you okay. go, hello, my normal face. You know, I'm perfect. Turns out that's fine. And also, also sometimes it goes wrong. Years and years ago, I think the second time I had it done, I mean, you can't predict when it's going to go wrong. <laughs> so I had it done. And um, my my forehead, sort of my brow, kind of collapsed into my eyes, <laughs> at like a sort of coastal shelf, like this sort of Neanderthal ridge, you know, which was there for about three months. So it's not risk free. But anyway, the idea of children buying black market poison to stick into each other and their own faces is just horrendous. Blimey! I mean, I don't need to Very ask you unless unless it turns out you are actually fifty, James. Well, and you've been using Botox. <laughs> yeah, I actually did almost have Botox uh, for professional reasons. Um, when I just <laughs> what? When, what? When is, this, I, is this a Nicola Geal feature? Yeah, for the I just times? asked oh, okay. the Times, and there'd been something <laughs> where laws around it had been liberalised, and you could get it in boots. So they're looking for a junior keen person, desperate for bylines, yeah. who would go and do it. And uh, I was briefly volunteered. Uh, and I started having cold feet and they were saying things like, I think, I don't know how much seriousness. Well, just have one, you know, just have it in one side of your face. But I think that would obviously give you a very <laughs> weird expression for the rest of your life. And then uh, my the arts editor at the Times, Alex, uh, intervened in a in a kind of friendly, motherly way and said, James, this might not be in your best interests. Uh, there are also, other ways I'm not sure it would be the best advert involved. for it, as you have such but also a the smooth and after I know, face. but yeah. well, maybe, maybe I'm the best advert for it. If I was able to tell people that my weirdly youthful looks are down to Botox, that could maybe, I don't know, I think, I think make, so. other, make other people want don't it. Don't do it, James. You don't want your forehead collapsing. Uh, uh, good warning there from India. Um, uh, <laughs> lovely to speak to you about India. You, of course, don't need, uh, don't need the Botox. Um, and I'm glad you're not doing that anymore because it all sounds mad to me. India Night and James Marriott then. Of course, you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. James on a Thursday, India on a Sunday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Web Box. Up next, it's my chat with Michael Quick. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now, remember this guy? You have the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. I'd never heard of you. Nobody in Europe had ever heard of you. Oh, I know democracy is not popular with you lot. You know, when I came here 17 years ago and I said that I wanted to lead a campaign to get Britain to leave the European Union, you all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? It's a good deal for the European Union, for the UK. I think it's probably the worst deal in history. Belgium is not a nation. Brexit is the first brick out of the wall. You've learned none of the lessons. The days of this project are over. What you've seen from Ursula van der Leyen today is an attempt for the European Union to take control of every single aspect of our lives. He's either the most influential politician in British politics in living memory or a menace who just poses with pints of beer. That's Nigel Farage uh, with quite the montage there. Um, He is the subject of a new book, One Party After Another, The Disruptive Life of Nigel Farage. It's by the veteran political journalist Michael Crick. And Michael joins me now. Morning, Michael. Good morning. What is um, uh, your... Where do you come down on the, the question of... Uh, I mean, I suppose you think he is uh, influential, otherwise you wouldn't have written a book about it. But is he the most influential politician in recent times? Definitely. Uh, and uh, a lot of people agree with me, both Remainers and uh, Brexiteers. And uh, the, uh, I think uh, without Nigel Farage and his leadership of UKIP in the early teens... Um, the pressure on the Conservative Party uh, was so great. Uh, they were forced to concede the referendum. He then uh, was, played a, a role in the campaign. And then he ensured that Brexit got through when he set up his second party, hence the title, or one of the reasons behind the title, uh, the Brexit Party, uh, which, of course, trounced the Conservatives in 2019, led to uh, the demise of Theresa May, the advent of, of Boris Johnson, and that ensured that the, that the Brexit finally uh, got through in, in, in 2019. Um, and it's difficult to see any... I mean, it's the extraordinary thing, of course, is he's done all this without ever being a member of the House of Commons, and, and nor will he ever be a member of the House of Commons, I don't think. Um, and uh, he's done it all from a platform inside the European Parliament, ironically. And you showed that montage... You played that montage of sound bites, and he was absolutely brilliant at designing sound bites and and crafting a 90 second speech because that's often how often you you know you get that little amount of time in the european parliament uh, which would then play on youtube and i think that the, the real skill in farage is he he is the su- supreme commentator uh, communicator of our age uh, even more so i'd say than boris johnson 
you're, uh, you conducted an astonishing number. Was it 300 interviews you conducted for this book? And, you know, yeah. re, um, not, I'm not suggesting that some people sometimes do biographies with slightly less uh, research. Did your opinion of him change at all? Or did you learn things that you... I mean, you've been covering politics for a long time, so you, you probably felt like you knew quite a lot about him. But was there anything Indeed. that you... You're, uh, as, as the man himself, did, did your opinion change? Did you discover anything you didn't know before? Well, I, I think... Uh, uh, the, the sheer resilience of the man and the sheer energy and the way he just kept at it, uh, I think I found impressive. Um, and uh, But I also the sheer ruthlessness of the man. I mean, you know, if Joseph Stalin were alive today, he, he'd he be quite an admirer, I think, of Nigel Farage. The way in which uh, he would regularly purge anybody within uh, the party, <laughs> uh, mainly UKIP, uh, who was seen as anything like a threat to him. And often these were people that he would encourage to get involved in UKIP, like Neil Hamilton um, or Robert Kilroy Silk or whoever. And, and eventually they'd fall out and, and out they'd be. And there were a whole load more uh, as well. He had and this habit, end, didn't he? That... He'd find like celebrities or at least people with profile and he'd think, well, I'll bring yeah. them in because they'll help and they'll bolster UKIP and they'll bolster yeah. my personal profile. But then as soon as they got a bit too, um, they, they, they served their purpose or they started taking a bit too much of the limelight, he turfed them out. Exactly. And I, mean, I think probably the worst case of that is Suzanne Evans, who, you know, was a talented uh, politician. She was only around for a few years and effectively deputy. Uh, she was deputy chairman, I think it was her time. But she did a whole load of things and Farage had her writing the manifesto in 2015. And then when Farage felt she was getting a bit too big for her boots, uh, th th they basically, uh, you know, concocted evidence against her, in my view. <laughs> and uh, she, she was out. Um, and, and, of course, the, the result was that after Farage left, although it's very difficult to say when he left, because he did it about four times, uh, there, there was a, you know, one duck leader after another, and the party collapsed. Uh, and, of course, Farage then had to found a new one when it looked like Brexit uh, wasn't going to go through. And he's, I mean, in a way, all of those parties only really existed as a Nigel Farage vehicle, didn't they? And whenever he wasn't there, yeah, they just exactly. fell apart. And uh, well, I mean, uh, the Brexit Party is now called Re Reform UK, and they're still toddling along under Richard Tice, and Farage is still officially the president of it. But the other, the other great irony of the story is that none of this would have happened if the Blair government, under pressure from Paddy Ashdown and the Liberal Democrats, hadn't brought in proportional representation for the European Parliament back in <laughs> 1999. And as a result of that, uh, Farage got elected as an MEP, and then at the next elections in 2004, they got 12, and it gave them a platform in the European Parliament. It gave them status and broadcast. In, oh, and above all, it gave them money. And UKIP were brilliant at diverting money from what should have been uh, European Parliament activities to campaign activities in this country and, and employing staff and so on. And, uh, and, and they had this sort of regular five-yearly injection uh, of, of success and how they would do really well in the European elections and everybody, the other traditional parties would get really, particularly the Tories, would get really worried about them. Uh, but of course now we've no longer got European elections for obvious reasons. And so uh, any third, fourth, fifth party like that is going to struggle uh, to uh, get a foothold in a way in British politics in the way that UKIP did in those years. And indeed, other, other, I mean, other parties did well out of as well, uh, the Greens and the BNP. But of course, Farage, one of great, Farage's great uh, achievements, which he uh, says himself is a great fan, and I agree with him, is he also saw off the BNP, uh, the British National Party, um, the extreme right-wing party in our, in our politics under Nick Griffin in the, uh, in the late noughties, 
And we forget very easily, it wasn't that long ago, but the BNP for the first three years of Farage's leadership were trouncing UKIP. They were getting twice as many votes in by-elections. And that struggle could easily have gone uh, in a different direction. Um, but Farage, uh, and Farage won it partly because of an irony of ironies. Again, the MP's expenses affair meant that suddenly in the 2009 euro elections, uh, people who normally voted Conservative, Labour or Lib Dem were so disgusted with the behaviour of their MPs, a lot of them went and voted for UKIP and sort of rescued the party and rescued Farage's leadership. The great thing about this story is it's, it's full of accidents and ironic twists like that. Um, I take your point about sort of seeing off the BNP. Was, yeah. was the price of him doing that actually... Uh, sort of wearing some of the BMP's clothes. I mean, over there were yeah. so many things that he said, which, you know, people would say was were, were racist. You know, whether it was people not speaking English on trains, talking about immigrants with AIDS, rapist yeah. immigrants, you know, the I, Turks I, I were coming. That, I, I, don't, I don't personally think that Farage is a racist. Um, and uh, uh, you, you only have to see, that, you know, the, his, his, in, his engagement with, with black people to see that he's not a racist. However... I think that like Enoch Powell 50 years ago, he uh, can be accused of pandering to racists. Um, and I think some of the things he said and, and the but breaking... What, Michael, what's, poster, the difference, what's the difference there? If you're willing to basically say well, racist think, things think, to appeal to racists, what, it's, a, it's, a, it's a technical difference whether or not you're actually racist yourself, it, isn't it? it, it well, it is, I, think that, I think there is a difference, but I think that, that you could argue that pandering to racists is morally uh, just as bad. But I, I mean... Uh, you know, and he was glad to have the BNP vote, uh, a, a, a large chunk of it, transfer to uh, UKIP. And, you know, undoubtedly, lots of people who were racist voters would have voted for uh, UKIP and the Brexit party uh, because of their stance uh, on immigration. So I, I agree. I think that, that morally there isn't a huge amount of difference. Uh, although I don't, I mean, Farage in his youth when he was at school was an appalling racist and anti-Semite. I don't, I, he doesn't come out with racist language. He doesn't. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he's not a, a racist in that sense. But the pandering, I think, is a serious charge against him. Michael, it's been fascinating to speak to you. It's really uh, what I know is uh, is a busy day. That's Michael Crick there. And one party after another, the disruptive life of Nigel Farage is out this week. And there's an absolutely cracking uh, review of it by uh, David Iwanovich as well in the, um, the Times uh, book review uh, pages. Uh, well worth uh, catching up with that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.